Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. 1797. Just 20 years into our country's political life, and just eight years after the U.S. Constitution took effect, 1797, 21 years after 1776, eight years after the Constitution, we had our first political sex scandal. Only took us eight years. Not bad. That's right. Scandals with politicians are as old as the republic itself. And most of you have actually probably heard about this scandal. You may not realize it, but you've probably heard about it because it involved Alexander Hamilton. And because of the musical Hamilton, many of us came to understand what was going on. Hamilton had an affair with a woman named Mariah Reynolds. Uh, and after that, he was extorted by her husband And then her husband uh, was arrested on unrelated charges, and he tried to sort of get a plea bargain that uh, dealt with giving some of Hamilton's adversaries uh, some dirty information on Alexander Hamilton. So Hamilton's response was to say, I did not commit any of the financial crimes. I did have an affair. And he published a 37-page paper detailing times, places, people, everything. And then he used his newspaper, the New York Post, to publish it to everyone. He just put it out there, all of it. And in the musical, this is sort of Alexander's fall from grace. This is where it all sort of falls apart for Alexander Hamilton. The, the biographer, uh, Chernow, who wrote sort of the authoritative biography on Hamilton, said, no, 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 that's just, that's just good drama. That's not the real thing. The real thing was the Adams papers that he wrote later. Don't worry about that. But in the musical, in the musical, Hamilton's three rivals revel. They run and dance around the stage, throwing copies of the Reynolds pamphlet in the air, singing and chanting, oh, he's never going to be president now. They are absolutely gleeful. And it's a funny moment. You laugh when you see it. Until you kind of think about it. Until you kind of stop and sort of process what's actually happening in that moment. Because most of us, are actually deeply afraid of what's happening in that moment. Our deepest, darkest secrets being put out loud for all the world to see. If others knew what I was really like, if others knew what you were really like, what we've actually done, we're terrified that we'd be left lonely and alone, which is essentially exactly what happens to Hamilton at that point. And in our day, there's a certain push-pull with this. On the one hand, as we consider especially our leaders, we want transparency and accountability, which we should. But on the other hand, there seems to be this impulse where we revel in their fall, 
where we are just incredibly excited. Like a number of you, I have been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast over the past month or two as it has been coming out. This podcast tells the story of the meteoric rise of a church in Seattle called Mars Hill that went from some people meeting into a living room to a mega church campus with 15,000 people spread across five states. And in a matter of a few weeks, it went from 15,000 to zero. It was a meteoric rise and it was a meteoric fall. And we listened to this and we're fascinated. It's a well-told story. But one pastor this week floated an idea, wrote an article that I thought asks a question that gets at what I'm talking about here. Is our love and fascination with the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast actually a form of failure porn? Do we watch it just to have the glee to see what happens? Because we as a culture actually like that. The other night I was trying to watch MasterChef and for the first time I was going to be able to watch it live instead of delayed on Hulu. And so as we're getting the kids in bed, as we're preparing to do it, I turned the TV on so that as soon as it started, I could pause it and we could get in our seats and make it happen. But in order to do that, the show leading up to MasterChef was the TMZ TV show. I don't know if it has a name beyond that, but it was just celebrity gossip. It was all the things that celebrities had done wrong. Apparently, this show gets huge ratings. Like I said, I've only seen the last three minutes of it. Why? Why does that show exist? Because we like to see other people fail. And the crazy thing is, is there's a show just like TMZ on every other network. Every other network has the same thing. We can say that we don't like to watch people fail, but our ratings tell a different story. Our clickbait, which all includes, you won't believe what so-and-so did, click here to find out, fills websites and social media. But the failure of others is just an ice cube on the sunburn of what's really going on in our souls. We try to use that to maybe make us feel better, but like all of you who have been in Florida for more than 10 minutes, you know that an ice term provides very acute short-term relief for your sunburn, but it does nothing to help you long-term. It's not aloe. It's not rest. It's not shade. It's not any of those other things. We are terrified that the exposure of our failures is next. And so we hide away. We shy away from intimate relationships that, that could jeopardize that possibility. We, we misdirect from our own failures by pointing at the failures of others, by reveling in the failures of others. If I can keep the failure cops from checking my stuff, then I'll be okay. So I'll just keep pointing out there instead of looking inside. Our souls crave, crave to be unburdened with what we've got pent up inside of us. They crave to be unburdened by this this weight of sin. But for most of us, we're unwilling to pay the price of genuine Christian confession and genuine Christian repentance 
That's what we're going to see in Psalm 32, which we're about to read. We're about to see what David has to say about genuine confession, real repentance, what's really going on in our souls. So I'd ask you to join me in standing. We're going to read Psalm 32. I'm going to read it out loud. You can follow along either on the screen or if you have a Bible with you or if you app on your phone, however you'd like. But let's hear God's word this morning from David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged to you my sin, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. We don't know exactly when David wrote this song, whether it was a part of his sort of saga with Bathsheba or if it was another time in his life. But David is acutely showing us and teaching us about confession and repentance. And he does it by beginning with some beatitudes. He begins with two verses of beatitudes. And most of the time when we think about beatitudes, we think about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And the sort of thing that Jesus holds up in those beatitudes are sort of good character traits. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But David gives us a very different set of beatitudes. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessed is the one who is forgiven for his bad behavior and his lack of righteousness, not blessed are the righteous. You see how that's, it's kind of like Jesus' beatitudes on their heads. He is saying, blessed are the ones who are forgiven and only the guilty can be forgiven and only sinners can have their sin covered. David's Beatitudes presume that we are sinners. And we look at that and we say, ah, yes, correct. I believe that. 
But this isn't something that we just sort of say we believe or need to admit once when we're 11 years old and we want to pray a prayer and ask God for forgiveness. This is the day in and day out work of what it means to be a Christian. And everyone here, all of us, would nod our heads. Some of you just did. Good. That's great. Some of you might even get frisky. And in a Presbyterian church, you might even say the word amen out loud. Maybe, but this is a, this is a big enough deal that, we, that this could elicit that sort of thing. The hard work of repentance is the day in and day out work of Christians. We'd all who are here who are Christians admit that that's the case. However, we do not live like that. We do not live as if the tr- that's the truth. Our lives tell a different story. We are perfectly pleased to say that we're sinners in the broadest of terms. We are happy to confess our sins in a corporate way like we do here at City Church. That even, we even find that to be pleasant and comforting. But when it comes to admitting real, current, sinful patterns in your life and mine— that's when we stop short. That's when we say, hold up. To actually tell someone about your porn addiction. To say out loud the brokenness that you have perpetuated in relationships. To give words to the way that your heart is a factory of judging others. To get that specific, to get that real in your life, in my life, all of the sudden, we're not so keen on saying that we're sinners. We're fine as long as our sin remains an abstract concept. So long as it's kept as an idea and not a tangible reality. The reason why this is, is that the nature of our sin in and of itself is that it always brings us not only guilt, but also shame. Sin always gives birth to the ugly twins of guilt and shame. It just does. And it is that shame that drives us into isolation, that separates from others. And David knows this. David says, blessed are the ones who are forgiven, who have confessed their sins. But as for me, when I kept silent, it was heavy on my bones. I groaned all day long. It was physical and emotional as well as spiritual. Our shame keeps us locked up and internalized. It it has physical effects on us. Maybe it disrupts your sleep, or maybe it's the fatigue of not being able to have a peaceful mind. David even goes so far as to comparing it to being outside on a hot summer day. We are Floridians, and this is August. We should understand David's metaphor here as well as anyone. I had, to, I had to let the folks in this morning as people came, and one person stood outside for two minutes, and it took them a full 10 minutes to stop sweating from the two minutes they were outside. I'm not saying who, but that's, the way, that's what's going on right now. You mow your yard, and it's exhausting, and there's not enough water in the city reservoir to quench our thirst after we mow the lawn for 30 minutes in August. Not enough water to stay hydrated. That's what it's like when we keep our sins pent up. 
That's why we lash out and try to shame others. We think it's going to dull our own pain. Pro tip, it will not. But David is painting a different picture here. He, he, he shows us what the possibility of happiness and blessedness is. He shows us what happens when we keep it pent up. But then he invites us into a different world, a different world than the one we live in, a world where we can be blessed by the confession of our sins, where we find a God who doesn't count our sins against us, where we can begin to be genuine and honest and whole. And that's what we long for. We long for those moments where we can be unguarded. Because we live in a time where the posture of being unguarded is dangerous. Where if we're not careful about everything that we do, bad things can happen. We live in that sort of time because we live in a time of fundamentalism on all sides. Uh, one of the ways that I saw this happen, it's two years ago, uh, last week. Um, are you familiar with the term main guy? Somebody became the main guy on Twitter. Main guy is used to describe so, some dude named Willie from Arkansas who has 200 followers and all of a sudden is getting blown up on Twitter for something that they said. This actually happened to a guy named Willie in Arkansas. Willie in Arkansas was a big fan of the country, alt-country singer Jason Isbell. I don't know what you'd call him, farm emo. He was a big fan of the farm emo singer Jason Isbell. And, and he, Jason Isbell tweeted out something about gun control and Willie McNabb, who none of us would know, replied to Jason Isbell and said, I understand that view on gun control, but I live in a rural place and I have 30 to 50 feral hogs who come into my yard and harass my children. What should I do about this? And of course, anytime you tweet anything about 30 to 50 feral hogs, even if you're being genuine, even if you're being real, the internet is going to have a field day and a field day we had, right? You may not, you, you certainly do not remember who Willie McNabb is, but even if you're not online, the phrase 30 to 50 feral hogs has probably floated into your life at one point or another. He replied to that with a genuine real-life scenario. And now, two years later, we know who he is. It can happen to good people. It can happen to bad people. It can happen online. It can happen in your office. It could be big. It could be small. It's almost always complicated. It certainly has nuance. But part of our fear is we don't know what the path back from something like that is. Where do we go from there? And so we remain guarded. So we don't, we don't say anything that we're afraid other people won't like. If you aren't a Christian, the question that I want you to consider this morning is what is the path back from shame for you? Because shame is in one way or another something common to all of us who are humans. And there are answers to that question that don't include the message of Jesus, to be sure. 
We don't have the market on fixing shame. But I think that our answer, the answer of the gospel, the answer of Jesus is far more compelling and beautiful than so many others. And I want you to consider him in that because David lays out that path back from shame. And that path back is true and genuine confession of our sin. And David shows us what that's like, especially in verse five. David uses a repetition. He has three kind of trios of words that he mentions in this verse. The first is about how he is talking about sin. He says sin, he says iniquity, and he says transgressions. But then he balances that by saying how he is confessing. We acknowledge, he acknowledged his sin. He said it was really there. He didn't cover it up and he confessed it. Remember that the Psalms are poetry, not poetry like we read typically, not poetry that has the last line of every other you know, line rhyme. No, but this is real Hebrew poetry. So things like repetition, things like mirroring, Three words for sin, three words for confession are significant and meaningful. He was completely honest about his sin. No evasive maneuvers. No covering up, no deflecting, no blame shifting, no minimizing. Fully honest about the nature of his sin. But we also see that he isn't holding back about his confession. He doesn't cover anything. He lays his soul bare. That is the cost of our confession. The cost of our confession, or the cost of forgiveness, I'm sorry, is our confession. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that confession is a work that merits the forgiveness of God. That's the doctrine of penance, and it's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, what I am saying is that the depth to which I confess is the depth to which I experience forgiveness. All of my sins have been completely paid for, completely covered from before the beginning of time. Jesus predestined me to that. He died for that. But when I just sort of hastily throw a my bad at the sky about my sin— my experience of forgiveness is hasty and shallow as well. But when I lay my soul bare, when I go the extra mile of not just confessing to God, but confessing to others in the church, I can experience a deeper, richer sense of forgiveness. And to be very honest, this is where I fall short. This is where I would want to pull up. I want my confession to stay between me and God. I don't want to bring anyone else into this. I don't want to bring community in this. I don't want to risk the exposure of telling others in my faith community. What if they reject me? Especially as a pastor. What if they demand accountability? What if they keep coming back to me, asking me questions about my sin? My head wants to say, no thanks. But like so many of you, I have experienced the balm of real forgiveness. I have experienced the soothing and soul-warming heart of Jesus when I have genuinely confessed to God and genuinely confessed to others. I have seen that. And so as much as my head says, no, my soul screams, yes, but it is just so hard. Verse 
because we don't like the vulnerability. It's just so hard because we don't like the exposure, the cost of forgiveness is the price of confession. But there's another price to forgiveness as well. David begins to feel the shame wash off of him in verses six and seven. And he encourages us to do the same. He has confessed his sins and God immediately forgave him. And now he begins to live in that. He comes to the final conclusion that we are surrounded by shouts of deliverance. That's where that song that we sing that has that line in it comes from. We're surrounded, church, by stories and songs of redemption, the noisiness of the forgiveness of sins. And while the forgiveness, this forgiveness cost us the small price of confession, it cost Jesus so much more. Because the primary cost of our forgiveness is the offering that Jesus made on the cross, where he truly paid the penalty for our guilt and took our shame on himself experiencing it for the first time in a way far greater than any of us could imagine. And Jesus does this willingly. He, he does this, the Bible says, because of, with, he does this with endurance because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy that was set before him was eternity with you. Eternity with me. Not in an esoteric eternity with the crowd, but in a specific and particular way with you and with me. The safety that we can experience in Jesus is that he already knows our sins before we confess them. He, he already knows our sins before we commit them, much less before we confess them. And yet, instead of shrinking away from us, instead of hiding his face from us, because of the reckoning of the cross, he continues to move towards us in love and in kindness because he has paid in full for all our sins. We stand in his joy. His smile on our lives and his hand on our path. There is therefore, as we heard from Romans 8 just a few minutes ago, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is forgiveness, full and free. Guilt atoned for, shame washed away by the water of our spiritual baptism. A loving invitation to walk with him through all of this, which is exactly where the psalm goes. In verse 8 and 9, the speaker changes. We hear from heaven. God speaks to David as David begins to revel in his forgiveness. And as we stand, a people marked by true confession, a people shaped by true forgiveness, he invites us along with David to follow him further up and further into the mountains of his wonderful grace. He will teach us how. He will comfort us with his guiding eye upon us. So church, if we have experienced the sort of freedom that that kind of forgiveness brings us, let's continue to press in. Let's continue up into those mountains. Don't be tempted to go back into hiding. Don't be tempted to go back into shame. Let us live in that freedom, not like the dumb horse and the dumb mule that he describes here. I hate horses. My grandmother and mother loved them. They used to do show horses. I don't know, it was like horse dancing, dressage or something, right? Me, 
first time I rode a horse, it flung me off its back, it stepped on me, and then it moved on. And ever since then, I've thought the truth, which is horses are terrible animals. They're so terrible, in fact, that we invented a giant metal toothbrush that you shove in their mouth and can control them with. Why? Because they're dumb. And they have to be controlled in that way. Maybe they're smart. Maybe there's horse lovers out there. I don't know. But I'm of the personal opinion that they're bad. And so is the Bible. So, he says, don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. You have to put that bit in their mouth. You have to put that bridle on their head so that you force them to go where you want. Jesus says, I'm offering you something different. Jesus says, I'm offering you a life without the bit. I'm offering you a life without the bridle. What that means is a life of real forgiveness and freedom to follow me where I am taking you. Paul says later, it is for freedom that we have been set free. That's what he tells the church at Galatia. And this isn't some sort of libertarian freedom. This isn't Rand Paul and Anne Rand's dream. No, the freedom of Christ, that is the freedom of somebody who has been forgiven of guilt and cleansed of shame. It's the freedom that true confession brings. It's the freedom of a light soul. And we can live in that. We can live in that and not in sorrow. The psalm ends by pointing that out. It ends with an anti-beatitude. Starts with beatitude. Blessed are the ones whose sins are forgiven. And it ends with this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Sorrowful are the wicked. Anti-beatitude. But that's not us. For us, it is the steadfast love of the Lord that surrounds us. That surrounds those who place their trust in him. He is faithful. If you haven't caught on, steadfast love is going to keep showing up in the Psalms. And every time it shows up, I'm going to break my rule of never saying a word in Greek and Hebrew because this one's a big deal. This is again the word has said that we have seen again and again and again through the Psalms. And I think maybe to tell you the best way to describe this love is to quote uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible uses this word hesed, uses the concept of hesed over and over. It's kind of the theme of the entire Jesus Storybook Bible. And here's the way she describes it. It is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. Church, we have free access to that. That has been given to us graciously, bought for us, not because we are perfect, not because we get confession right all the time, not because we do it well, but because of the sheer grace of Jesus. And he invites us to experience that never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love of God. And we experience that through genuine confession through becoming a community where it is safe for one another, where we have friends who we can be real with, who we can show the recesses of our hearts to, and that sparks joy and praise in David and in us. Be glad in the Lord. Shout for joy. Church, we have forgiveness, full and free. We are invited to experience it in all of its depth because we have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. May God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love shape us 
and our church and our city groups now and every day. Let's pray.